G'day, welcome to Just In Case Law. Hello fellow law nerds, I'm Tanya Chapman. I work as a solicitor with Delaney Roberts in Newcastle, but I live with my dog on the central coast. So I've got a pretty big commute to work. Like many commuters, I listen to podcasts, including my own, Not in a weird way, more like reviewing my own work and sometimes I'll think, damn, why did I say that? Or, you know, I buggered up that pronunciation. Actually, I think that a lot. What I'm trying to say is that I like feedback, even my own. But if you have any feedback, especially on what cases you would like me to cover, please let me know. This case is an application by the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia bringing allegations of professional misconduct against a Miss Abba Kumar. This matter was heard in the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal in 2019. Even though this is a case of professional misconduct, it was really relevant in my area of practice because it involves a will, so there's succession law in there, And it also involves what could be perceived as elder abuse, which is also one of my areas of practice. So this case came onto my radar that way. But if you would like me to cover other professional negligence cases, just let me know. The background. Miss Kumar was a registered nurse and was the nurse unit manager at Cambridge House a residential aged care facility in Collingwood. On the 3rd of July 2015, Mr Lionel Cox, then aged 92, was admitted for respite care at Cambridge House. Mr Cox had no family. He was the only child with no children of his own, but he had good neighbours. With the assistance and care of his neighbours, he had, until that time, been able to remain in the home he owned in Fitzroy despite his poor health and multiple hospitalisations. He had been living alone in his house and would often spend his days reading in the State Library, walking there and back from his house. His neighbours would assist him with small tasks, like paying bills and providing him with meals. On the 4th of January 2014, Mr Cox suffered a heart attack. From there, his health went downhill, and by July 2015, he had become frail and required more assistance than his neighbours could provide. He agreed to try respite care. Mr Cox told his nurses his intention was to stay until the cold months were over, and then return home. Mr Cox met nurse Miss Kumar when he first was admitted to Cambridge House. She was told that he had no friends or family. She also learnt that day that he owned his own home and had not made a will. Miss Kumar's position was that of the nurse unit manager, responsible for the overall provision of nursing services, but not routinely involved in the delivery of day-to-day care. It was not her role to undertake tasks for residents. Those would be or should be allocated to the case manager. Which is interesting when you look at her actions immediately after Mr Cox was admitted. Within three days of Mr Cox's admission to Cambridge House, Miss Kumar began researching ways for Mr Cox to do a will. 
Three weeks after Mr Cox was admitted to Cambridge House, Miss Kumar escorted him home in a taxi to collect belongings and cash. Miss Kumar put the cash, being $4,500, into her purse and kept it with her until later in the day. This visit was highly suspicious, as it was unusual for nurses to transport a patient home. Rather, that was the role of the case manager, and this was done without Mr Cox's case manager knowing. Three days later, Miss Kumar purchased a post office wheel kit, which, as a side note, I absolutely hate. They may be the cheaper option, but they can potentially cost estates a lot. But this isn't the place for that rant. Miss Kumar purchased the post office wheel kit for Mr Cox, and on the same day, the document was filled out, leaving his whole estate to Miss Kumar. The will was witnessed by a nurse and staff member at Cambridge House at the direction and insistence of Miss Kumar. The first staff member she asked to act as witness refused, stating that she was the lowest paid employee and asking why someone else couldn't do it. She was instructed to ask other staff members to witness. One of the witnesses was engaged in other duties at the time and did not wish to act as witness. The other was distressed and anxious about doing so, but both were told to take it up with Miss Kumar. The original staff member then phoned Miss Kumar and said that the two staff members would come and sign, and Miss Kumar said, quote, Now, I want them in the quiet room now. End quote. The will had then been presented to them folded over, so that only the attestation clause, that part where you sign your name, was visible. Miss Kumar also had her palm over the document and said, quote, You do not need to know what is written. You are just observing Mr. Cox signing the will. That is all you are witnessing. End quote. Both of the witnesses later attested that they only signed the will once on the second page and couldn't explain why the document also had what looked like their signatures on the first page. Unbeknownst to the witnesses, the will named Miss Kumar as executor and sole beneficiary of Mr. Cox's estate. At the time, the value of Mr. Cox's estate, including the house, was over $1 million. Only days before the will was signed, Miss Kumar had arranged for Mr. Cox to be assessed by a doctor for his capacity in relation to whether he had capacity to appoint a power of attorney. She did not also request that he get an assessment of his capacity to do a will. This is odd because clearly she was intending for him to do a will. She knew he was getting a capacity assessment. Why wouldn't she specify that the capacity assessment needed to relate to the will as well? Miss Kumar, in the days after, proceeded to make a number of odd statements to her fellow staff members. She told a staff member that Mr Cox had nephews in Ireland and that he had named them as beneficiaries in that will. She later told the same staff member that Mr Cox had since torn up the will. She told two other staff members, one of whom had been a witness to the will, and the one she had tried to get to act as witness, quote, You do not need to worry, Mr Cox ripped up the will, end quote. She also said to other staff members, quote, Lionel does not want the will. 
He wanted it torn, end quote. On the 9th of August 2015, a little over a month after Mr Cox moved into Cambridge House, he died of natural causes. Miss Kumar was not at work that day, and she was phoned with the news. She promptly phoned the nurse in charge and directed her to search Mr Cox's room for the house key. The nurse was not comfortable doing that and wanted to wait until Mr Cox's body had been removed from the room but Mrs Kumar pressured her into doing it. She went into that room and was having trouble finding the house key, and she was so distressed that she was pale and shaking and upset, and some other nurses offered to help her search. As they were searching the room, they apologised to Mr Cox's body. This nurse later said, quote, It is a very small space where this person has taken his last breath and he is laying there waiting to be collected while we are going through his stuff. That felt really wrong. That is why we were saying sorry. That was very, very wrong. End quote. Two days after Mr Cox's death, Miss Kumar removed the will from the safe. She said to one of the witnesses to the will, By the way, that will that you signed is legal. When the witness said, Excuse me, you told me that it was torn. Ms Kumar replied, No, it was not torn. It is in my office and someone may ring for it. In the week of Mr Cox's death, Ms Kumar requested that all the paperwork for his file be brought to her office and then it disappeared. Ms Kumar obtained a grant of probate and transferred Mr Cox's house into her name. She later sold the house for $1,117,000. She also received additional property from the estate, worth just under $40,000. A couple of months after Mr Cox's death, his neighbours and friends rallied together in their concern about Mr Cox's last will, and how it had come to leave his estate to a staff member at the facility. They were concerned about his vulnerability when the will was made, and the potential for other vulnerable residents to be at risk. Four months after Mr Cox's death, six of the neighbours, representing the larger group, notified the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, referred to as APRA. APRA began an investigation into Ms Kumar's conduct. In light of the professional and ethical obligations nurses have towards their patients, their colleagues, the public and their profession. It was not the role of APRA or the tribunal to decide whether or not Mr Cox's will was valid, nor was it about the medical care he had received. This was a case to determine whether Ms Kumar had engaged in professional misconduct and or unprofessional conduct. This involved determining how the will came to be signed and witnessed, who was in the room at the relevant times, and the degree of Ms Kumar's involvement. During the investigation, a request was made for Mr Cox's file, at which time it was discovered that the file was missing. When Ms Kumar was asked whether she knew what happened with the file, she said, do not worry, it will come up. On the same day that Ms Kumar had been phoned and told that the authorities were looking for the file, she went to the facility after 5pm when she was supposed to be on leave that day, and used her swipe card to get in. The next day, 
Mr Cox's file was miraculously found in the filing cabinet. The Court Hearing The charges against Miss Kumar were as follows. 1. That Miss Kumar engaged in professional misconduct by transgressing the boundaries that should and ordinarily do exist between a registered nurse and her patient and that she was over-involved in the affairs of Mr Cox. Second, that Miss Kumar engaged in professional misconduct in knowingly and inappropriately retaining a benefit obtained under Mr Cox's will. I will point out now that the board during the proceedings dropped this second allegation. Third, that Miss Kumar engaged in professional misconduct and that she failed to adequately manage a conflict of interest in that she obtained a benefit under Mr Cox's will in circumstances where she knew, prior to Mr Cox's death, that he intended to name her as a beneficiary. And fourth, that Miss Kumar engaged in professional misconduct in that she failed to practice the profession of nursing in a reflective way by failing to have regard to the views and beliefs expressed by her colleagues. Professional misconduct is defined in the national law as conduct of the practitioner, whether occurring in connection with the practice of the health practitioner's profession or not, that is inconsistent with the practitioner being a fit and proper person to hold registration in the profession. The Code of Professional Conduct for Nurses in Australia that applied at the time provided that nurses had a responsibility to maintain a professional boundary between themselves and the patient being cared for. The Nurses' Guide to Professional Boundaries, which also applied at the time, stated that in considering a proposed behaviour or activity, a nurse should ask whether there are other external resources that can be used to meet the need. For example, arranging for Mr Cox to see a solicitor who can assist him with preparing and executing a will rather than doing it yourself. Throughout the investigations, the investigations by the APRA board and by St Vincent's Health, and over the course of the tribunal hearing, Ms Kumar denied that she had engaged in any improper conduct. In particular, she denied any knowledge of Mr Cox's intention to appoint her as executor and beneficiary of his will. She admitted that she was in some way involved in arranging the witnessing of the will but said that she was surprised to find herself a beneficiary. She claimed that it was her intention to donate the inheritance to charity, but she had not done so as yet because she had been advised by her legal representation not to do so while these proceedings were on foot. As she was claiming innocence, the matter proceeded to a contested hearing that lasted over five days. There were over 16 lay witnesses and one expert witness who gave evidence. Seven of the witnesses were employees of Cambridge House. Miss Kumar accused her colleagues of lying. She said that they had misunderstood instructions. Miss Kumar also gave evidence, and she was found not to be a witness of truth. Quote, we gained a strong impression that when she saw the significance of a question put to her in cross-examination, she embellished or changed her evidence to meet the difficulty, often creating inherent inconsistencies with her previous evidence in the process. 
she appeared to be literally making it up as she went along. End quote. After the evidence concluded, and after discussion between the parties, the parties agreed on a statement of facts. In the statement, Ms. Kumar conceded allegations 1, 3, and 4, and in doing so admitted that that she was over-involved in Mr. Cox's care, knowingly engaged in a conflict of interest, and disrespected her colleagues by instructing them to facilitate it. She acknowledged that she had directed three staff members for whom she had managerial responsibility to breach their own professional responsibilities by witnessing the will. She acknowledged that her conduct was for her own enrichment, directly and intentionally resulting in her receiving $1,157,000 from Mr. Cox's estate. Ms. Kumar admitted that she knew she would be named as a beneficiary in the will before it was signed. She also admitted that, after the will had been signed, she had made false statements to other staff members that the will named the two nephews and that Mr. Cox had torn it up. She also admitted, at this stage, that she had not received legal advice not to donate the inheritance to charity, only that she had been advised not to donate it to St. Vincent's Hospital, as that might result in a conflict of interest. She conceded, under cross-examination, that she in fact intended to keep the money, partly to pay the cost of these proceedings. Miss Kumar admitted that she was aware that it was against hospital policy at Cambridge House for staff to sign legal documents, and in particular, they were not allowed to sign wills. Also, it is normal for staff in aged care facilities to take notes of any interactions they have with residents, especially any interactions of insignificance, but Miss Kumar had not kept any notes of her interactions with Mr Cox. It could therefore be inferred that she did not keep notes because she wanted to conceal her conduct from her employer because she knew it was inappropriate. The tribunal made the following findings. They found that Miss Cox was in the room when the will was signed and witnessed, that one of the witnesses actually did not see Mr Cox sign the will, that the two-page will was presented to the witnesses folded over so that they could only see the attestation clause and could not see that Miss Kumar was named as a beneficiary. They found that although the first page purports to bear the signatures of Mr Cox and the two witnesses, that they only signed the second page of the document. And they found that Miss Kumar refrained from being a witness to the will herself because she was aware that she was named in it and it was also aware that she could not herself be both a beneficiary and a witness. Orders I think we all know where this is going, but I will mention what the tribunal said. Quote, The primary purpose of determinations is to protect the public, not to punish the practitioner. That primary purpose together with protection of the reputation of the nursing profession in the eyes of the public, is achieved by ensuring that proper ethical and professional standards are maintained. End quote. 
There are a lot of things that the tribunal takes into consideration, including the nature and seriousness of the conduct and the risk it poses to the public if engaged in by others. Any plea of guilty? Whether there is a need to deter other members of the profession from engaging in the same conduct by signalling that adverse consequences will follow as a result. The disciplinary history of the relevant person, evidence of character, personal matters such as shame, personal or financial difficulty. Whether the person has demonstrated insight into the seriousness of the conduct and how and why it occurred. And whether they have shown genuine remorse and have taken independent steps to reduce the risk of repetition. The tribunal had the option to make any of the following orders. To caution or reprimand the practitioner. To impose a conditioner on the practitioner's registration, such as a condition that they have to complete further education or be supervised for a period. To require that the practitioner pay a fine of not more than $30,000 to the National Board. To suspend the practitioner's registration or to cancel the practitioner's registration. The court noted that cancellation of registration sends a clear message of unsuitability to practice, where a suspension may be thought to indicate confidence in the medical practitioner's future ability to practice once the period of suspension is served. So cancellation is like saying, we do not feel this person is suitable to practice in this field again. And suspension is, yeah, they, they will be suitable to practice again after a little bit of time. The tribunal decided that given the seriousness of the conduct, cancellation of registration was appropriate. They then had to decide what was an appropriate period of time. Counsel for the board was seeking five years disqualification, whereas Ms Kumar submitted that 12 months disqualification would be sufficient. The tribunal noted that the conduct was objectively serious. It was apt to undermine public interest and trust in the profession. It incurred in relation to a particularly vulnerable patient who was relatively isolated and nearing the end of his life. Further, Ms Kuma had made false statements and her, her conduct was deceptive. She challenged the evidence of her colleagues, subjecting them to cross-examination and accusing them of lying, while knowing that what they were saying was true. And while she did acknowledge the wrongfulness of her conduct, she still retained the benefit over a million dollars. Her conduct was manipulative, disrespectful of her colleagues' experiences, and more egregious because she was the nurse unit manager in a position of power and trust which she abused. Ms Kumar's side argued for leniency, arguing that she had been a well-regarded, hard-working manager, that she had a good employment record of 17 years with no other breaches, and her hitherto good character, that she was a person capable of learning from her mistakes. For the tribunal's response to that, I am going to quote bits and pieces. Quote, This is not a case where a nurse, unknown to him or her, has been named as a beneficiary in a patient's will. 
A nurse must not accept any benefit under a patient's will, but must instead refuse it. The conduct in this case constituted determined, goal-directed actions by Miss Kumar to ensure that Mr Cox, a vulnerable elderly man in her care, made a will in her favour, and that no one knew he had done so until after he died. Miss Kumar abused her leadership role and authority by directing staff under her to breach their own professional obligations. She overrode the distress and unwillingness of one of her staff to witness the will, and the later distress and unwillingness of the nurse in charge who did not want to search the room while Mr Cox's body was still there. Her conduct in this aspect was manipulative and entirely self-interested. She betrayed the trust of her employer, her colleagues and the community. We will never know what Mr Cox's reasons were for making the will, but whatever his intentions, she also betrayed the trust every patient is entitled to have that a nurse will honour his or her ethical obligations in all their dealings with the patient, will not financially exploit a patient and will not put self-interest first. End quote. It was noted that while Ms Kumar argued that her actions were a one-off aberration, that was not the case. This was a well-executed plan that took several days to complete. It was also argued that while she was of good character, she was unable to provide evidence of that. The usual character references were not provided. And anyway, it was noted, quote, Character is determined by actions including what a person does when an opportunity to behave unethically presents itself, when no one is looking, end quote. Based on her flawed character, the tribunal determined that she continued to present a risk to the public. And last of all, they noted that she still had the proceeds from Mr Cox's estate, demonstrating a failure to understand what the right thing to do is and a willingness to profit from her wrongdoing. Ms Kumar was disqualified from applying for registration as a registered health practitioner for a period of five years from the date of the orders. She was prohibited from providing any health services involving provision of care to persons in residential aged care or receiving home or community-based aged care or disability care for a period of five years. Lessons. Curiously enough, St Vincent's Health Australia had a policy at the time regarding testamentary capacity and witnessing of wills, which stated that staff should inform patients and family members that they are not allowed to witness legal documents on behalf of patients, especially wills, and anyone needing witnesses of legal documents to be encouraged to seek independent assistance where appropriate and possible. This has definitely been my experience. I am sometimes called upon to assist people living in aged care facilities to draft and execute a will. And I do let family members know that staff at the facilities will not be allowed to witness. One of the reasons for this is because if at a later date that will is called into question and the witnesses to the will need to present evidence to court, Aged care staff members cannot afford 
to be dragged away from their duties. They can't afford time off to go to court. So they are told not to act as witnesses so that they don't risk that happening. There is also the risk of a conflict of interest. Their duty is to provide care and they are in a position of trust where the patients rely on them and rely on their expertise. It could be a conflict if such a person was called upon to witness a will, as you saw in this case. That was the case of the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia versus Kumar, 2019, Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, 1099. A case where professional misconduct, succession law and elder abuse collide in a really interesting case that demonstrates the risk to older persons in aged care facilities or who can be influenced to execute a will in a certain way. I hope you found this case interesting and I hope you'll join me for my next episode.